Welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, so at the time of this recording, that means 25 years. You can read all of my written work there at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do, very similar to this one, except it covers mainly films of the 1990s, although I dabble a little bit more into films that are currently released as well, if they tie in somehow with the 80s or 90s. That show is called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find the link at my website at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the third part of this three-part series, looking at films from the 80s that have electricity as the source of evil. Last week, I looked at Shocker from 1989. This one I'm going to do today is also from 1989, and it also features a very similar premise of somebody who gains supernatural powers through an electric chair. From 1989, I'm talking about The Horror Show. Now, The Horror Show is also known as House 3 in some parts of the world. Well, this was released in the United States as a standalone film, not part of the House series. And I'll get into the reason why it's called House 3 in some parts of the world during the body of this review. The Horror Show is an R-rated film. It does have brief nudity, gore, pervasive violence, and strong language. The runtime is an hour and 35 minutes. Well, it depends on which cut. There's a European cut that runs a little bit longer. The main stars are Lance Henriksen and Brian James, with supporting roles going to Rita Taggart, Dee Dee Pfeiffer, Aaron Eisenberg, Tom Bray, and Matt Clark. The director, well, it's a little convoluted, but the credited director is James Isaac. And the screenplay, well, that's also convoluted, but it's credited to Alan Smithy and Leslie Boehm. Now, after the modest success of the house films, the producer of those movies, uh, Seanus Cunningham, he commissioned a script from a, a TV comedy writer from the 70s into the early 80s, Alan Warner, to make a new horror film. It was originally titled Horror Show, without the the. Cunningham felt that with some additional work, it might actually qualify as a candidate if he wanted to make it for the next House feature. Unfortunately, the studio, New World Entertainment, they were in a restructuring phase. That was following a series of financial setbacks, so they weren't really willing to take much of a gamble during this period. And that's because the new management, they saw the diminishing returns of House 2, the second story. They didn't think it was a wise investment to put money into a third. So Cunningham took the horror show concept to MGM United Artists with a pitch that it could be either made as a third house film or as a standalone horror entry. United Artists, they preferred that it remain a one-off horror feature perhaps one that could turn into its own series, and they bestowed The Horror Show a budget of $4 million. Given the liberty of creating something new, Cunningham started to work on making The Horror Show a much scarier and more intense kind of horror film 
that the script had provided, one that could spin off into another franchise if it proved successful. So he brought in another promising writer, Leslie Boehm, to retool the Warner script. Boehm had been working as a songwriter for many years, primarily in the country-western genre, but he was also in pop music and some new wave as well, bass guitarist for the 80s pop group Sparks. He also provided music and songwriting and some vocals for lesser-known bands like Bates Motel and Gleaming Spires. He would later be involved with A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, the same year. He did the script for that one before shifting into more big-budget efforts like the 1990s blockbusters of a sort, Daylight and Dante's Peak. Now, as the changes were not to his liking, Warner replaced his name with the perennial pseudonym of Alan Smithy, which gave him a cut of the residuals, but he didn't get credit in the public for whatever happened to the movie after that. Now, the plot of the completed film involves, well, about 110 people, at least over that, were viciously murdered by this serial killer known as Meat Cleaver Max Jenke. Max Jenke, he gets caught, finally. He gets the death penalty, as you would imagine. He's sentenced to fry in the electric chair, but Max is not going to go easily. He stays alive for nearly 10 minutes as they zap him with literally everything that they have before he finally expires. However... Something happens in the process of electrocution that allows Jenky somehow to live on as a supernatural entity of electricity, and one that's going to seek revenge on the cop that finally arrested him, Lewis McCarthy. Now, McCarthy is suffering from his ordeal in dealing with Jenky from PTSD, and that forces him into a leave of absence while he sees a psychologist until he's deemed well enough to return as a detective. But... Despite Jenky executed with McCarthy's own eyes, he still sees him everywhere, in his dreams, on his TV. He pops up just about everywhere when he's out and about. Either Jenky is living on as a supernatural being and also taking up residence in McCarthy's basement around his furnace, or McCarthy is delusional, and that might actually put his family in grave danger. As he tries to take down Jenky once and for all, with his family in the house. Now, as Cunningham was working on another feature that he was doing around the same time, a little bit before, science fiction adventure I talked about on a previous episode called Deep Star Six, his visual effects supervisor for that film, James Isaac, he caught a peek at the horror show script that Cunningham had in his possession, and he said he would offer his services to direct it if he was looking for a director as his first feature film. Now, Isaac was part of the technical crew, but he did have a live theater background from his days when he grew up in Marin County, California. He spent most of his time in his high school and college years acting, directing, designing sets, and it was there that he got to know other people that became part of the movie industry, like Fred Decker and Ethan Wiley. They happen to be the co-writers of the first house film. They left for a film school in UCLA and then broke into the business. Now, Isaac himself broke into films while he was at Marin County, at Lucasfilm, as part of the post-production team there. He started as a creature technician on Return of the Jedi, and he continued working as part of Chris Wallace's effects team called CWI for the next few years, beginning with the 1984 film Gremlins. Now, in the late 1980s, several notable makeup effects supervisors were making the leap at that time to the director's chair, and that included such stalwarts like Stan Winston, who did Pumpkinhead, and the aforementioned Chris Wallace was going to direct The Fly 2. And when Ethan Wiley, who had led the effects for the first House film, was given the gig to direct House 2, 
he asked his old friend Jim Isaac to supervise the effects, and that's where he was introduced to Sean Cunningham. Now, Cunningham liked Isaac. Isaac was very pleasant. He was very easy to work with, but United Artists did not want him selected because he was a first-time director. They wanted somebody with experience, so they attached When a Stranger Calls and the Rosemary Murders director Fred Walton. Cunningham started bringing aboard talent that he had used on the house films, as well as Deep Star Six, like cinematographer Mac Alberg, Henry Manfredini as the composer, and also the newly formed effects company KNB. KNB added all manner of grotesque practical effects for the horror show. For the look of Janky in the electric chair, they started imagining his skin might crack and distort like a hot dog in a microwave, which they achieved using bladders under prosthetic applications and other very gruesome new techniques that they were bringing to it. Now, the first big snag for the production of the horror show occurred when six weeks prior to the start of production, Cunningham fired Fred Walton because they had way too many clashes creatively. So United Artists did not go at that time to Jim Isaac. They suggested another director as Walton's replacement, New Zealand director David Blythe. Blythe was, at that moment, preparing to board a flight to Europe when he received Cunningham's call, and he started as the director the very next day. However, Blythe, when he read the script, he despised it. He thought it adhered way too much to the boring slasher movie formula that he had seen time and again. He was not particularly interested in directing it as it was in the script. When the casting did begin, they met with additional difficulty because the actors also thought that the script was terrible. Lance Henriksen and Brian James, they had conversed with each other prior to actually accepting about the script issues. Brian James, he agreed that if Henriksen was willing to sign on, he too would sign on. Brian James would play the villain, Max Jenke, Henriksen playing the hero, Lucas McCarthy. When they accepted, they did lie to Cunningham about liking the script, though, so that they could just get started. Now, Blythe reckoned that the most interesting horror flicks that he had seen in his life were made by mavericks. They bucked conventions to make a standout horror film. And so one of the first packs that he made was with the actors. He encouraged them to give him input on their characters, to flesh them out, to make them more than just what was on the written page. He wanted to go just beyond being just a cash-in, sleazy slasher film. In fact, they all thought that they could make this film a subversive parody, making fun of slasher films from within if they did it right. So they sat around in a round table format. Anything that they felt rang false as part of the script, they crossed out with a red pencil. After those elements were revised, they went through the process again, and by the time they began the shoot, they were on their fifth pass. But the script was still not quite complete. So they continued to brainstorm. Brian James came up with his character's complete backstory. In the original script, Max Jenke was just a mindless evil brute. We didn't find out why he killed. He was just evil, and he killed with a meat cleaver. James thought that Max Jenke should be extremely intelligent and clever, not just a dumb killer. In James's mind, Jenke began life normal, but then he suffered sexual abuse by his mother beginning at age seven, and then when he was age 13, he killed both of his parents. And those were his first kills among many. Now, while other slasher films have villains, they wear grubby clothes and a mask or a hat. Janky, as Brian James envisioned him, was much more well-read. He would be fashionable. He could appear in different disguises, different voices. He would know a lot about science. He was going to keep himself alive through the execution. He would figure out a way to transform himself using some sort of quantum physics or something 
into other forms from within another plane of existence that he can traverse back and forth to. Now, despite all of these attempts to provide depth by Blythe and his cast, Cunningham, when he saw the dailies, he did not like what he was seeing. Blythe and these actors were seemingly going completely off script. They were reimagining entire scenes. They were changing the nature of their characterizations. Cunningham advised Blythe, hey, stop intellectualizing. Just concentrate on putting forward visceral scares. That's what people want to see. This was a horror flick. This was not a family drama. Blythe countered that this script was a complete liability. It was bizarre. It was nonsensical. It had so many unresolved narrative issues. He had to do something about the family dynamics to raise the fear so that the audience would feel for them when they're ultimately in jeopardy. Now, knowing that United Artists, they were going to be upset that they were not going to get the movie that they were paying for under Blythe, Cunningham felt that a swift decision was necessary to save this film and get it back on the right track. So after 10 days of Blythe being the director, he was fired. Now, with Cunningham involved with post-production on Deep Star 6, and without a lot of time to bring in a new director and try to get that director completely up to speed, Jim Isaacs, the effects supervisor, was in the right place at the right time to finally get his crack at directing. Cunningham already knew he wanted to direct this movie, but given that he already knew how to handle all of the effects work and he knew all of the technical crew, this was going to be a bonus. So Cunningham wanted Isaacs to take over the next shooting day. Isaacs came in, he announced he was taking over as the director, and the actors were absolutely floored. They were stunned. The tension grew instantly thick on the set. This was the effects guy. What did he know about directing this motion picture? Is he going to change everything that they had already built up into making this just another cheapy slasher film that they were trying to avoid? Rita Taggart, she plays Lucas McCarthy's wife in the film, She loved working for David Blythe. She said that the actors felt especially insecure at Blythe's firing because they felt that they had also contributed to the many changes that were done to the script. So if Cunningham didn't like what Blythe did and he was fired, it also meant that he wasn't liking what the actors were doing. But despite a very rough start, about a very tense first week, Isaac soon won the actors over. He admitted to them. He recognized the script had many issues, and he blamed that script on the speed that MGM UA was greenlighting this film, and they put the project into production before it was completely baked. He also told the actors they did not need to change what they had planned for their characters. In fact, the actors could direct their own performances as far as he was concerned. He was not going to get involved in telling them what to do, and he would use that time instead to rewrite the script on the fly before each shooting day. He also felt that some of the scenes that Blythe shot, mainly scenes of McCarthy's family, were indeed worthwhile to keep in the film. He would just have to work around them. They curbed additional costs by hiring a non-union crew. They shot in rented locales around the Los Angeles area instead of a Hollywood studio soundstage. Isaac took the approach of concentrating on maximizing each day's schedule to get as much in as he could. And when Cunningham saw the dailies, he was generally pleased with what he was now seeing. After they shot the film and it wrapped, Isaac discovered that the breakneck speed that he had done for the shoot did cause some problems during editing, specifically because crucial expository elements didn't seem to come together, and it was especially missing the explanation of the supernatural metamorphosis of Max Jenke. He just went from getting killed in the electric chair to this being without any notion as to how or why this happened. He did the best he could with what he had, and when he completed his first rough cut, 
As he watched it, he felt it was playing way too dark and grim. He proceeded to edit out about 20 minutes of what he considered to be unnecessary and pretty depressing material, but there were still those aforementioned narrative gap problems. So Isaac requested to Cunningham, he wanted to do a week of pickup work. He wanted the story to make more sense. He wanted to lighten the tone of the film because he felt that what he had to work with wasn't going to be good enough for most audiences. Isaac wanted much more clarity in how Janky comes to power, this explanation of subjecting himself to doses of electricity beforehand in his homemade electric chair so that his body, when it came time to actually get electrocuted, he would be inured enough to survive the real thing. Cunningham pled for reshoots with United Artists, but he was told that they were in financial limbo. They did not want to invest more money into something that may or may not work. So Cunningham, he made another bold decision. He was undaunted. He said that they should do more shooting anyway and he would find a way to get more money. So Isaac spent the next two weeks writing new scenes to be put in the film. He added much more off-the-wall comedy surrounding Mass Janky. There was much more ambiguity on whether he exists beyond Lucas's imagination. He also added such scenes as Max Janky turning into a roasted turkey at the dinner table during one sequence. That would increase amusement while also furthering the notion that Lucas was losing his marbles since he was the only one who could see this. That turkey sequence, by the way, replaced a much more gruesome and grim and dark one where they were cutting into a birthday cake and then blood starts oozing out. And that followed by the cake falling apart to reveal the severed head of the family cat inside. There was also a sequence where McCarthy sees Janky performing a terrible stand-up comedy act on TV. He was the only one who could see it. The rest of the family were laughing at a, another comic that they were viewing. Now, Brian James happened to be a performance comedian prior to becoming a film actor, so he was kind of a natural at this on this fake TV program called Deathathon. Now, bringing this into the feature, that was kind of a fine line to try to tread because going the comedic route with the villain... These zany hallucinations fostered the further comparisons to Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. So they were going to go full bore, and at least they knew that Freddy worked as a villain. They also decided to add a little bit more sex appeal to the film. They had Dee Dee Pfeiffer, the younger sister of Michelle Pfeiffer in real life. They were going to give her a shower scene. Now Pfeiffer groveled, but he, she accepted on one condition. No boobs, no butt, no bush. They could add the sex appeal with the body double, I guess, if they wanted to, but she preferred no nudity. Now, the ending was also changed to the film. They initially shot a much more somber reuniting of the family, completely exhausted and depressed, embracing, consoling each other after the harrowing events of the Max Janky experience. They replaced that with a much more humorously upbeat new ending that finds them rediscovering the family cat still alive, Scott McCarthy, the son of the family, played by the future portrayer of Nog on Deep Space Nine, Aaron Eisenberg. I talked about him on a recent episode of this show because he was in the first of two 1989 films, coincidentally, with an electrical menace that invades the home of characters that Eisenberg portrays, the other being the made-for-TV movie I talked about a couple of episodes ago called Amityville, The Evil Within. They added comedy where he starts getting shipments from various companies that he's scamming, saying that he found rat hairs or body parts in their products, and they would give him free products so that he would not bring it to the public light. Now, supporting actor Tom Bray, he was mostly known for his stint at that time on TV's Riptide, but he also, if you're a horror movie lover, you know that he got impaled by Alice Cooper with a broken bike frame in John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. I talked about that a few episodes ago as well. 
He's playing a scholarly scientist named Campbell who discovers the connection between evil and electromagnetic energy. And Campbell implores McCarthy to reverse the curse by getting Janky to take another trip into the electric chair, and that would bring him back from whatever dimension he was in to mortal human form, and there he could be killed. Now, when it came time for Campbell to become a victim of Janky's revenge, they started running through several iterations of what should be Campbell's grisly death. They were going to electrocute him, but they felt that the film had too many electrocutions already, so they resorted to hacking up Campbell's body, but they felt that that was just taking too long, so they decided, just make it quick and simple, just behead him and be done with it. For the musical score to the horror show, Henry Manfredini, I mentioned earlier, he had a challenge here. He had a challenge to find the right tone of the film because the tone was shifting so much from scene to scene all during this production. It was inconsistent. The story was already very strange. And a lot of the scenes were uncertain as to whether they were supposed to be made a fantasy or they were part of reality. So Manfredini went in he concocted an electronic score. He added some distortion to try to keep things unsettling. And he did what he could to distinguish the sounds that would clue audiences in on whether to take the scenes they were watching as actually happening or if it was going to be something solely imagined in the minds of the characters. Now, for marketing purposes, when they were going to push this out, House already had foreign distribution inroads in overseas markets. It was going to be much easier to sell this as House 3 than it would be an all-new property to those foreign markets. So they decided to use the title House 3 outside of the United States. It had a lot of the same people behind the scenes. It was set mostly in a house, so it kind of fit, even though it had no tie-in to the first two House films whatsoever. Even though they were trying to avoid obvious comparisons to Freddy Krueger, eventually they saw an advantage to embracing it. The parallels to Freddy Krueger here. The tagline on one of the posters reads, you'll wish you were back on Elm Street. Ironically, those most film critics who saw the horror show probably did wish it were Elm Street. But, well, speaking of Elm Street, Wes Craven was making a Nightmare on Elm Street knockoff of his own, his own property, Later that year, with the same premise, Shocker, you know, many have pointed out the similarities between Shocker and the horror show. In fact, as I mentioned on the previous episode, Craven accused Cunningham, more or less, of ripping off his idea that had been around for a while. But Cunningham asserts that the Alan Warner script had been in existence at least since House 2's release. Regardless of whether Horror Show ripped off Shocker or not, I mean, they were both beaten to the punch by several other films, including a 1988 film that featured former football star Lyle Alzado. That was called Destroyer. That was about a nasty serial killer surviving beyond his electrocution to kill again. And that's also similar to a 1987 Rennie Harlan film called Prison. And that features a convict executed in the electric chair coming back to slaughter the people in the prison that he was killed within. And then there's also another film, lesser known, called The Chair. It was released in 1988, but it was produced way back in 1986, and that was about the reopening of a prison that turns out to be haunted by an evil ghost of a former electrocuted inmate. So this was an idea that had been around for a while, too. Now, one more obstacle to the success of the horror show, one that would also plague Shocker, by the way, the same year, was the MPAA bestowed the horror show with an NC-17 rating for Isaac's intended cut. Now, Cunningham felt there was no time to finagle with the MPAA going back and forth with a bunch of different takes to try to get as much as they could out. So he immediately started cutting everything that he felt would push the film beyond an R rating. He trimmed a lot of the grotesque elements, 
especially of the electrocution sequence. Although by doing so, others observed that the finished product, the trimmed down product, actually seemed darker and nastier because the original version was so over the top. It was absurd. It was laughable in the way that it was done. And now it was just grim and depressing the way that it played out. But it was deemed acceptable for our rating. KNB, the effects crew, they were particularly dismayed that so much of their work was going to be excised from the theatrical cut. They had done so much ingenious practical effects that really showcased what they could do. One in the sequence where the teenage daughter Bonnie's boyfriend gets ripped in half by Janky. Very elaborate effects there. And they also felt that their most amazing work, there was a moment when Lucas McCarthy opens up a wound in his chest. That's still in the film, but it eventually reveals his beating heart within. They put a lot of effort into making that as realistic as possible. Now, the European cut, which you can find on some DVDs and Blu-rays, that restores some, although not all, of that imagery that was removed from the U.S. version. Now, despite all of these personnel moves, all of these reshoots, all of the cuts, it was all for naught. The horror show tanked at the U.S. box office. It took in only $1.7 million. You know, it had that budget of about $4 million, not counting advertising costs. So it was a bust. Critics especially hated it. In fact, even today, with all of the nostalgia and all of the reappraisal of many films from the 1980s, it still sits at a dismal 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. The slasher genre, it was just on a steep decline financially. And beyond this, the film lacks genuine excitement genuine suspense, or many moments of genuine interest. It's a plant's honest thrills with a mean-spirited level of violence, particularly laborious to have to endure if you're not into gratuitous violence. Many eyes will roll seeing how many times the story contrives that members of the family are going to find an excuse to go down to the basement where Janky obviously resides, and mostly what they get there are obvious jump scares for most of the runtime. The injected attempts at humor, they unfortunately fall flat. The subplot of Scott McCarthy getting product shipments after falsely accusing the manufacturers of finding things in their products, it feels so woefully out of place to what the rest of this film is. And it makes no sense. You know, his father is a dedicated law enforcement officer. Why is he okay that his son is completely scamming companies left and right with fraudulent information? The best thing I think you can say about the horror show is that it does still feature some good performances here. Brian James, he's gleefully way over the top in what ultimately he considered his most fun role to portray in his career. James considered himself kind of a a character actor anyway at the time in the classic tradition of old horror movie greats like Lon Chaney, Charles Lawton, Wallace Beery, actors known for always playing the bad guys. So he viewed Janky as the ultimate culmination of all of the disgusting slimeballs that he had ever portrayed in his career. Unfortunately, his character comes across, in the end, more loud and goofy than he is genuinely frightening. And that means that by the time we get to the climax, there's very little tension that is necessary to take this film from so-so, not-so-great to something that would ultimately be worthwhile in the end. Now, Lance Henriksen, who was cast here by recommendation of Deep Star Six's writer, Louis Abernathy, he was a friend of James Cameron and loved Henriksen's portrayals in his film. Henriksen manages to give a very solid performance, despite the terrible nature of the rest of the material. Henriksen happened to be going through a very messy divorce at the time, so he was not in the best of moods. He plunged himself into method acting 
for the part, and he stayed in the mindset of the character as much as he could when he was around the set. Even the chair that he sat in between takes read, instead of Lance Henriksen, it read Lewis McCarthy, because he felt that having his real name there would take himself out of the character between each take. He wanted to stay in his mind as that super cop McCarthy. Now for the rest, yeah, there's really no defined tone other than wildly uneven. This is a movie that is all over the place in its tone and its tempo. It's really kind of a mess here. Henriksen would later say in interviews that he was thrown into a cauldron of mediocrity as a result of such things as the director switch and the ongoing script issues that went on all the way to the very end of the production. I guess fittingly, Cauldron of Mediocrity, that's about as spot on a review as I could make of this movie, and that's why I'm ultimately going to give, maybe generously, but still, the best I can give the horror show is two stars out of four. Two stars on my scale means that it is a mediocre movie. It's a film lacking something vital that would keep it from being something I could recommend to most people, and that which is lacking, obviously, is any direction on where to go with the material, and that's because they didn't have a viable script before they started to roll film. And it does show, unfortunately, even with very strong performers here. And the movie does hit a groove from time to time. It never builds any real momentum by the end. And unfortunately, it is a misfire. It's not even as good as Shocker the same year. And Shocker, at least to me, was not that good of a film either. So two stars out of four is the best I could give. The Horror Show, a.k.a. House Three. If you have your own thoughts on House 3, The Horror Show, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there. Quipster.net, that's where all the links reside. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Well, for what I'm going to be covering on the next trilogy of films, well, we're smack dab in the middle of the House franchise here. Might as well go back to the original House. I've been all around this film. I've covered Poltergeist. I've covered Amityville Horror. I've also covered House 3 here, so why not start the next trilogy with the 1985 horror comedy called House? A surprising hit film at the time and has continued on with a cult following over the years. I haven't seen it in quite a while, so I'm looking forward to catching up with that. And hopefully also you will check it out before I get to the next review. But until then, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 